Our text for our scripture reading this morning is in Matthew chapter 2. This can be found on page 807 of your church Bible if you're using that. It's the very first page after the New Testament break in the Bible. We'll be reading the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 2. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And for you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. I think one of the things that's always fascinated me about some of the people that I've worked with, and maybe you know someone like this, or you work with someone like this, But the people who follow movie stars or sports figures, leading personalities, now we can throw in the term influencers, that they follow them so closely, they think they have a personal relationship with them. 
It's always amazed me that when I go to the grocery store, that there's still these gossip magazines that people can check out. Or it's sports radio, where they're talking about certain personalities, where people want to know what's going on in their celebrity's private life, as if they know them. They know facts, figures, crazy things, when they were born, their favorite hobbies. You know the people I'm talking about. They think they know them, but do they really? They follow from such a distance, and yet, they think they know them. In the same way, I would say that we can come to a text like Matthew chapter 2 in the same way. We think we know these stories. Some of us have been hearing them since the time that we were little. But when we stop to consider them more deeply, we realize that so much more is going on that we sometimes gloss over. Do we stop and consider the depths of these truths? You see, we can treat the account of Matthew chapter 2 like a story that we know from memory, and some of you do know this story from memory. But what about challenging our assumptions as we consider what happened nearly 2,000 years ago? So for this Christmas morning, I would like us to approach Matthew chapter 2 with fresh eyes and to look at it in three broad categories. First, I want to spend some time looking at how the wise men can be, we can be tempted to view them as traditional kings. That we know the story, we know the gifts, we know why they come or something like that. But to consider anew actually why they did come and why it's actually striking. Second, we'll consider how Herod acts like a typical king. That his response to the same infant that is born could not be any more different than the Magi. Third, we'll consider this infant who caused such a contrast. And to consider this morning what our individual response may be to this birth, to one, this Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, as we celebrate this Christmas morning. So we'll look at a traditional king, a typical king, and a true king. And what I hope to show from this chapter this morning is that there are two responses, either the response of the Magi or the response of Herod. There is no third response that we would like to give to Jesus. We either respond with faith, trust, and humble action, or we reject him and do what is right in our own eyes. So first of all, this view of traditional kings. So much of our knowledge as this was being read, I'm sure, was being shaped over the years by well-meaning Christmas carols. But sometimes these carols miss the real impact of what is going on here. Well, what are they not? Well, just a few things here that we're not going to spend time on other than just list them. These were not kings in the traditional sense, as we will see uh, as we contrast them. They had no kingdom. After all, what kingdom has successfully had three simultaneous kings at the same time? There may have been not necessarily three. Traditionally, it was three because there are three gifts, one for each. But there could have been two. There could have been many. They are not named. And they do not appear at the manger, per se, because in chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us that by this time they were in a house. And you may ask, where was that house? And the thing is, Scripture doesn't tell us because that's not what's important. What is important, what it wants to challenge us with, first of all, is Matthew's portrayal of who this king is and our response to him. 
You see, these gospels, these good news messages, give us different facets, different pictures of who Jesus is. Matthew writes primarily to a Jewish audience to show that he is the long-awaited king of Israel. And yet, what challenges us at the beginning is that who are the first people to come and worship him in Matthew's account? Here are non-Jews, Gentiles, as the first to come and worship and give him gifts. See, this Messiah, this newborn king, was bringing his reign over the entire cosmos, even for those who were far away from him, even for those who were from a foreign country. Now, this is not who we would expect initially. But what the Old Testament has been building towards is this moment. The Old Testament prophets, and indeed all of the Old Testament, has been laying the groundwork. And it was not the people who should have seen it who recognized it, but these foreign magi, these wise men. Just one example of this, that it was clear in the days of the Old Testament, is from Isaiah chapter 2. It gives us a very vivid picture, and this is what it says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And catch this. All nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. You see, it's striking. It should be amazing to us that when Matthew recounts this, it's people who are far off, who are distant, who came and gave the first offerings to, the, to Christ. Well, the second challenge then is this to consider what the Magi really knew when they came and found this baby. See, these are not godless astrologers who were consulting their daily horoscopes for the stars to see what would happen that day. Rather, these were Magi. These were wise men, men who were the royal advisors to kings. In the Old Testament, about 500 years before this event, we have in 587 the captivity of Judah, taken into captivity into Babylon. And if you ever read the book of Daniel, with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken and they were made and trained into these wise men, these counselors, these royal advisors. So about 500 years ago, they went east, they lived in Babylon, and where did these magi come from nearly 500 years later? It's quite possible that the magi are from the region of Babylon or the surrounding area. And how did they know about this? Well, listen to this story, these words from Daniel, chapter 12. Perhaps it was circulated and passed down to these wise men succeeding through the generations. So it says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn would turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And what did the wise men see? This star that was in the heavens. But verse 4 is interesting. This is what it says. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. 
You see, Matthew is drawing on this important thing of the two major events of the Old Testament. And the first is this, that of the exile. That when they were carried into captivity, Daniel and his friends were this light to that nation. They were carried away and they would be restored in the Old Testament, longing for the day when the kingdom would be restored to Israel. Well, the king has come, but not as they would expect And yet it's the wise men who saw it. You see, as with Isaiah chapter 2, where the nations are streaming in, coming, uh, the coming of this awaited and promised one would usher in this new kingdom, this new reality. And one of the ways that we know that when Daniel talks about this, until the time of the end, that things are never going to be the same with the birth of Christ, consider this. Even Christians and non-Christians mark history, and it's measured by the birth of Christ. Now, not too long ago, um, I can remember when it was just B.C., before Christ, or A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Of course, in recent years, if you're in scholarly work, uh, there have been new terms, which is C.E., which is the Common Era, or B.C.E., before the Common Era. But the date is still the same. The subject is still the same. It is the birth, the resurrection, and the work of Christ that is the defining moment in human history. As the old saying goes, you can put makeup and lipstick on a pig and it's still a pig. Changing the term does not change the fundamental reality that the birth of Christ is the definitive marker in human history. Think about this. This morning's call to worship was from Isaiah, chapter 60, when he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, this was foretold, and it's these wise men from the east who could see it. You see, what lies behind this and many other Old Testament promises is God's long-awaited redemption. One of the earliest anticipations of the events of Matthew chapter 2 is in Numbers chapter 24. And this event with uh, Balaam's prophecies is referenced a few times in the New Testament. This is what he prophesies when the king of a nation pays him to curse God's people. He says, I can only say what comes out of my mouth that God gives me. And one of the things in Numbers 24 that he declares is this, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. You see, this star with its scepter will crush God's enemies. Thus, it is only fitting that the star would come out of Jacob would be announcing the supernatural work of God, giving light to the night sky for these magi to follow, but to point to the true light of God. And probably the other challenge to tradition that we can consider is this, is that this is really a call to believe. The call this morning is to say, what are you doing with your knowledge of who Jesus is? We don't know for sure exactly what the wise men knew, but we knew that they saw the star, they knew enough, maybe handed down through the generations, through the Magi, from Daniel, to say, this is the one true king. Look at what the text says in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 2. Not that he will become king, but that he is king. 
Even today, people are discussing this week, I've heard people say things like, Christmas is the day that Christians believe that Jesus was born, and Christmas is the day that they believe that Jesus might have been the Son of God, but we don't know about that stuff. No, the, the wise men had it right. They said, he is already the king. Not that he will grow to become the king. He is the king. They worshipped him. But look at the worship demonstrated in verse 10. When they saw the star, and it's hard to really put this in English, but the ESV does a good job to say how excited they were. They could not contain themselves. That they re- rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were overwhelmed. And what did they do? In chapter 2, verse 11, they offer these gifts worthy of a king. Again, they know just enough to come and to cause them to react with worship and humility, to acknowledge that there is a greater wisdom than they had, a greater king, a greater ruler than the one that they were humanly serving in their court back home. So the challenge for us today is to consider what we know about this newborn king. Now, it's interesting that this star imagery was used here as well, because it's often used in scripture to apply to Jesus himself. In fact, the last two nights we've had with our, our, our choir and musicians to lead us about the light shining in the darkness. It's interesting that this imagery in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it says that Jesus is the bright morning star. And to those who trust in him in Revelation chapter 2, verse 28, he gives the promise of the morning star. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, better than the wise men, the magi in Matthew chapter 2. To which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What are you and I doing with this knowledge of the light of the world, this true morning star. See, my guess is that many people today at this moment are happy with the ornamentality, the sentimentality of Christmas. But this king demands something more. Regardless of how little or how much you know about Jesus, are you seeking him and humbly relying on him alone? So the Magi challenge us to move from tradition to belief and trust. Second, we see Herod. King Herod, who stands in stark contrast to these kings, these wise men, these Magi, who is not uh, the one who submits his knee and humbles himself, but rather acts like a typical king. So many examples could be given throughout history. Just even take the Roman emperors, uh, if you study them and their actions and their life. They seek to preserve their own kingdom, their own title, their own estate, their own possessions, no matter what it takes. See, unlike the Magi, the actions of Herod are, are not the subject of many or any popular Christmas carol that I can think of. In fact, what is recorded in scripture here is the exact opposite of the ubiquitous, do you hear what I hear? Where, if you recall, and if you missed it somehow this season, I envy you, where the king sings at the end of the song, let us proclaim to all people that they should worship the one who brings goodness and light. 
Well, if someone were to write an accurate biblical carol of Matthew 2 and Herod's response, it would actually be, do you fear what I fear? Look at verse 3. When he heard this news, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So the message of peace for Herod did not bring comfort or peace. Why? Because he was a threat to his agenda. It was a threat to his kingdom. Verse 7 tells us this, that he summoned the wise men secretly to know where the child was under the pretense of worshiping their rival king. Only later in this chapter do we find out his real intention, to put to death this one, again, who would not become king, but who is king. We see how he carried this out in verses 16 to 18. And Matthew quotes from the book of Jeremiah, again, hearkening back to that exile to that time when the children of Israel were carried away into captivity and the pain and the suffering about the time of Daniel. So all this is building to the crescendo of who is this baby? See, Herod responds in selfishness and self-preservation. Now, we can look at this text, text and we can argue that, well, I've never done anything that extreme. I'm not that bad. But my question to you is, what is standing in the way of you trusting and believing in the promised Prince of Peace this morning? I say this knowing that this exhortation is standing between you and the rest of your Christmas day. But don't be thinking ahead. You have the rest of the day. But consider this right here and right now. What is standing in the way of you believing and trusting and worshiping this Prince of Peace? Is it a claim? Is it acceptance? Is it pleasure? Is it maintaining an ideal picture-perfect world as you envision it to be? Is it keeping others at arm's length and at a distance because you don't want to let people into your life because you've been hurt and burned so many times before? You see, as this chapter ends, we are told that Herod's best laid plans do not succeed. Not only does he not succeed in killing this rival king, But his reign actually ends in the midst of this story. Look at verse 19. Very matter of fact. I love how Matthew just kind of says it. No matter how much Herod tried to accomplish his own agenda and his own will, it just says, but when Herod died, dot, 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 he planned on holding his kingdom at all cost, and yet he could not even control his own life and death. You see, the contrast between the humble, non-Jewish worship of the Magi and the selfish, self-preserving, and heinous actions of Herod points to the fact that there is no third response to this newborn king. So what do we know of this newborn king from Matthew chapter 2? Well, these events sound also familiar of another major event in the Old Testament. I said there are two that the Bible continually points back to. The first is the exile. But prior to that is what happened in the days of Moses in the second book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus. If you recall, there's many parallels here. That Moses, when he was born, was kept away, uh, kept safe. He was kept from Pharaoh, who also wanted to kill many of the baby boys of the Hebrews. He was kept safe, but he did not succeed. And what did Moses do? Ultimately, when you read the book of Exodus, he led the children of Israel out of physical slavery, 
out of the land of Egypt. But was this physical uh, deliverance the final destination? No, because if you read the Old Testament, there was a greater exodus, a greater Moses, a greater deliverance that was coming. See, Matthew goes out of his way to make this point at the end of Matthew chapter 2, to make this connection between out of Egypt, I have called my son. You see, Matthew is quoting Hosea chapter 2 and Hosea chapter 11, where he says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. To make this connection that a better exodus, a better deliverance is coming. The book of Hebrews puts this Christmas story, this deliverance, this message of a new exodus on this Christmas morning in this way, in chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, there's the incarnation that Jesus himself, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So whereas Moses granted deliverance from physical slavery, which is wonderful and and incredible, Christ delivers us from spiritual bondage and spiritual slavery. That is why the Magi came and worshipped because they saw this. And in fact, for the rest of his good news, the rest of his gospel, Matthew is going to, to do this. He's going to show how Jesus came to deliver us from every evil in the world to make us members of his family. How everything is pointing now with his birth to his life, to his teachings, to his miracles, to his death, and ultimately to his resurrection. See, what the wise men saw was not that Jesus will become king, but that he is king. And whatever depths of spiritual insight they had, they knew that he was foretold. Look at their confession in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 2. Where is the king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. What a statement of trust. Very simple. And what about you and I this morning? Will we respond with faith? And trust, no matter what we know about who this Jesus is? Or will you or I, like Herod, try to preserve my own agenda, my own self-rule that is doomed to fail? You see, this child, this baby that we celebrate will come and he will do so much more. And we look for the day when he will come again. It's one of the Christmas hymns that we sing, as with gladness men of old, has this prayer, and perhaps you would like to pray this this morning. Holy Jesus, every day, keep us in the narrow way. And when earthly things are past, bring our ransomed souls at last, where they need no star to guide and where no clouds thy glory hide. Will you believe this this Christmas day? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your people here, a great deliverance. One from our sins and from our greatest fear itself of death. We thank you for the newness of life that you give us through your son whose birth we celebrate today. Strengthen us with your truth so that we may serve you now and for the number of days you give us on this earth 
as long as we have a day to celebrate, until we come into your presence and enjoy you forever and ever. In the strong name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.